I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is a podcast from the Smart Material Collective, made by nerds, funded by the listeners. Is hair a material? Are biscuits a material? Are crystals a material? Is plastic a material? Is porridge a material? Can gases be a material? Are eggs a material? Is water a material? What do you call everything that isn't a material? <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to laugh at your question. And yet you continue to do so. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to Real Talk. I'm your host, Anna Pajajski, and this episode I'm talking to computational artist Richard F. Adams about the materials which he uses in his work, which, in their most fundamental state, are computer code. I started by asking Richard about his background in computational art. Well, uh, I've got a rather mixed background, um, and I've sort of, I'm classic genre jumper in the, in the sense that um, I don't see any particular reason to say in one particular field if I need to move to X then I'll go and do this with X but my background's in two parts it is initially largely traditional fine art, so I'm a fine art graduate I'm a painter um, I went into art teaching which is what you do when you, you graduate from fine art because you can't make any money at it um, but then I went headlong into computing in the early 90s and since then I've jumped between the two really in a, in a very weird way you know culminating in working as an architect and senior program manager and business owner in um, big digital companies like Microsoft Xbox uh, Aviva I've worked at BSkyB BBC uh, I'm currently in telecoms doing a day job as a as an architect on transformation but at the same time I'm still doing the work in art, so I'm also currently a visiting senior fellow at Lincoln University. I'm exhibiting art slowly, but uh, exhibiting nonetheless um, after a gap where I didn't. And along the way through the career, I've actually jumped back into education and I founded a digital arts department in a university and um, co founded a college of creativity. So I don't know, an odd mix. I don't respect boundaries. <laughs> I was just going to ask, do you think you have a job title at the moment? What would it be? A uh, job title at the moment? I, I would classify myself as an artist or architect, actually, but architect in, in the computing sense. Mm -hmm. So um, within that, though, there are many, many different versions of the title architect, from software architect to enterprise architect. But generally, I get employed to work out how to build things, mm -hmm. uh, how to put things together, and then that knowledge I use on the art side, if you like. Um, 
But I'm no respecter of boundaries. I don't care. If I want to do something, I'll do it. Awesome. So the artwork that I've seen that you've been doing most recently mm. is based on selfies mm. as opposed to self-portraits, yeah. which I think is an interesting distinction in itself. Can you talk a bit about the thinking behind those pieces of work? Yeah, well, it's really simple. Um, there's a couple of things driving that. One is a reaction to critical illness, and the other one is a reaction to culture, critical culture, if you like. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I was doing while I was sort of initially laid up a year ago, I was thinking about... Um, what the dominant art culture is, if you like, because what what the 20th century saw in Western art was a series of, and I'm inverting inverted comma <laughs> fingers at the moment, but um, movements. So you'd see cubism, futurism, vorticism, all of that sort of stuff. And having been immersed in computer art myself for nearly 30 years now and understanding that that goes back even further, um, I began thinking, well, what actually is that tradition? Because when I look at computer art and we talk to people and I interview people myself on, on other podcasts and things, I'm very aware that often the word tradition doesn't come up. And so I'm thinking, well, if you're doing a data visualisation and you're calling it art, what tradition is that? Is that a new tradition? Are we inventing a new language? Are we inventing a, a new way of expressing things? Or is it, as I often think just something that actually is very pretty and has no emotional contact, no emotional whoomph. Mm-hmm. It doesn't get you there in the chest, you know, when you see it, but it is nonetheless very beautiful, and a lot of work I see, I think, is in that sort of area, but I don't see there being a tradition. So I was thinking about the work. If I started to work with portraits again, for instance, how would I deal with that? And, and actually it struck me. Actually, what it was was I did a talk, and the talk had a slide with about five pieces of computer artwork on. And I asked the audience when they'd been made, and they all sort of said, now. And Mm -hmm. I said, well, actually, that one's 1960. That one's 1972. That one's 1975. And I said, that's a worry for me in the sense that that stuff is there, but it doesn't seem to have moved on particularly in terms of the end product, Mm. if you like. Some of the thinking and the competition and the techniques have moved on a lot. But the end product doesn't do that, and they seem to just reinvent themselves. So every generation of people who come along and say, oh, I'm a computer artist, just seem to re- don't have any sense of the history of it. Mm. And there is a tradition there. But then I got to thinking, well, actually, is there a tradition there? Because if you took the 20th century in Western art terms, you know, it was a series of movements uh, moving from, you know, the breakdown of representation uh, in the early 20th century through analytical, analytical cubism out through modernism and into postmodernism, and through conceptual art underneath, where, you know, we moved from representation to concept, effectively. But there seems to be a lack of the movement, if you like, at the moment. And I was thinking, well, what is the dominant, you know, uh, mm. cultural movement at the moment? And the more I thought about it, the more I, I came back to the notion of the selfie. Yeah. Because literally everybody's doing selfies, and they've raised them to a high art form in the sense that when you look at selfies that get hundreds of thousands of hits, what they are and what they serve the function is that they're almost romantic paintings because what they've done is taken the notion of romanticism, of trying to make something look very romantic and beautiful and, and raising it above mm. what it act above realism, if you like, yeah. magical realism even. But they're, they're very romantic in that sense, and I sort of got this sense that everything was very quasi uh, neo-romantic and I don't quite know the word for that mm. And but that seems to be where the selfies are and so I was thinking well what's the obverse of that and 
the what what it struck me was well actually they're showing none of the bad bits of their life and we're all aware of this when we look at social media streams that we see the good things so you know i've got friends who post constantly about the places they're going and actually you know they're just dirty smelly primates dressed in <laughs> uh, in rags you know doing all the things primates do um but they post this very selective view of themselves that tells a particular story and it's there's two couple of things interesting there. One is that high romanticism, and the other is the fact that it's become very democratic. Because everyone can do because it. Because everyone can do it, and we've all got a high-quality camera. The only thing most people miss with smartphone cameras is lighting. Right. Often, you know, if they, if they think about the lighting, they'd get 100% better photographs, but, you know, <laughs> that, that takes a bit of time and practice, to be honest, but it really is a big problem. Um, however, you've got these two things, so I was thinking, well... How do I address that? And I thought I was feeling very bad. I've been critically ill and I've had a string of operations and stuff. And I want to deal with that and I don't want to get depressed and I'm channeling stuff out through the work. Well, actually, here is a medium where you present the very best of yourself. I'm feeling the very worst I could feel. Mm. So actually, why not represent the worst I could feel? And of course, then I thought, oh, you know, nothing's new, is it? Oscar Wilde did it, picture of Dorian Gray. Right. And that's actually what the work is. Yeah. Every piece of sort of anger and despair and everything from inside me, all the angst, is being channelled out into this picture in the loft. But, of course, the clever thing is, you know, in the sense that I've got um, not only the tools to make it, I've got the tools to conceptually visualise and communicate it because, actually, I've got the art background. So I've embedded them firmly within the Northern European tradition of expressionist work, but actually going right back through... You know, you've got Egon Schiele, you've got Bacon, you've got uh, Monk, Kokoschka in the in the 20th century, but going right back through Rembrandt and back to Goya and, and people like that. And if you look at them, they're quite intimate. They're only meant to be fairly small, about A4 size, and I've visualised them with large, thick Rococo gold frames because I always envisage them as those Rembrandt self-portraits, you know, with the chiaroscuro lighting... Uh, the mood, the tears in the eyes, all of that. But, of course, as you do more and more of them, you become much more confident with the visual language you're working with, and they've become much more expressive. So they've gone through the Kokoschka phase, and they're out the other end now, and they're they're now um, turning people on and off in equal measure. <laughs> people on Reddit love them. Right. Um, because everybody on Reddit's depressed, I think. <laughs> uh, <laughs> depressed or angry. Um some people really don't want to talk to me about them because they find them uncomfortable. But uh, they're quite shocking to look. Are at. they? Yeah. I don't know. This is the problem. Okay. I mean, the you problem can't... is, I can look at it as a formalist mm. and say, and I can tell you what it's saying, but I almost can't read mm. that last bit of the impact. I can't get that. But I've been wanting to make digital or computer art that had an emotional impact. For years. It, it definitely has that, yeah. I would say. Maybe shocking is too strong a word, but it's very um, intriguing and you want to know more about the person. I think because some of, a lot of the features at times are obscured or it's almost an impression of a person as opposed to... Or you're kind of looking through mottled glass or you can't quite see... Well, I think that's the point. Them. And I, I think, you see, but that's partly... Somebody said, oh, well, yeah, but you're just using computers or you've taken a selfie and you've modified it or you've done this or you've done that, mockingly. And I said, well, 
I'm just using the technology that's there, mm. the medium that's there, you know. And, and I said, David Hockney does exactly the same. Do you slag David Hockney off <laughs> for picking up a Polaroid camera and taking a photo? No, of course not. He doesn't develop that photo, though. Mm. He doesn't even set the aperture. The camera does everything. But yet he spots the image he needs to take. And mm. similarly with all this work, it's about spotting that ability and that thing where you communicate an essential meaning. And I think a lot of computational art doesn't have that. Mm. I think that it's very clever often and often very beautiful. So you see lots of beautiful data visualisations in exhibitions, things like that, but they don't move you. No. You know, they, they just don't. And, and they only, you know, they'll move a geek because a geek will look at it and say, oh, you know, that's used a Fourier transformation in X, <laughs> Y and Z <laughs> yeah. um, in order to do that. And you get very excited about that. But that's the same as getting excited about oil paint. Mm. And people forget that oil paint itself is a technology. Of course. It's a material. Yeah. It was invented. Mm-hmm. And it created new opportunities for artists to do different things. And similarly with photography, it's no coincidence that with the advent of photography, painting diverged into into less representational stuff. The, okay. the birth of the impressionists and stuff was around that time. Yeah, because you know, you know, and our understanding of light and science advanced, mm. and actually that had a massive impact on on Western art. And you know, all of these technologies we've got produce materials that you can work with and media that you can work with and they're bound to have an effect on work and the work I've got at the moment is a product of its time both culturally and technically you know I mean it goes right back to I think when I first went to art school in the 80s uh, I did a traditional foundation course and one of the first things we did there was learn how to make paint and I'm not sure people do that anymore when they work with paint. But actually, learning to make paint, I'll never forget the act of doing it because actually I said, well, why are we doing this? And I was puzzled. I was just fresh out of school. Um, And A-level art, bless it, doesn't really stretch you as an artist. Um, And I remember the lecturer saying, who's a very, very good sculptor, as it happened, but he said, how can you really work with something unless you understand the materials you're working with? And I think you cannot separate the materials from the intent Mm -hmm. in a very real sense because if you really understand how to make a mark in that medium, then you can use it to communicate. And in the end, art is, whether we like it or not, and I know know plenty of people disagree with me, but bear with me, I was taught by conceptual artists, people who invented conceptual art, but it is about communicating something if all you're doing is putting nice colours together in a pretty pattern, then it's a great piece of wall hanging. It really is. And there's nothing wrong with that, but don't claim it's great art. But this is why you can look at, or I, you know, I and other people can look at two abstract paintings and we can say, well, that's better than that one. And people go, oh, it's just out of taste. And it's not. It's, taste is subjective. Mm-hmm. But underneath it, objectively, there is a, a sophisticated abstract symbolic language at work but you can't make that work without understanding how to manipulate the medium Mm. and the materials and and all of that sort of stuff that we're we're talking about so I think pulling all that together I went back to the dominant cultural force of our time which is selfie culture Mm -hmm. that is social media that's what it's about Um, 
and using all the technologies at my disposal to do that. So that is phones, it's a Surface Pro, it's uh, simulated paint packages, uh, it's all of that sort of stuff. Now, you know, the next phase of it is to go back into sort of more aggressively computational stuff, I think, next year around that. Um, but I kind of needed to sort of sort out the concept and the meaning, yeah. I think, and explore that, and that's what I've been doing. Okay. I've been doing many variations in order to sort of work out my own version of this language. Yeah. So what are your materials then? They're really simple at the moment. Uh, the materials are paint packages, and I'm painting, I'm taking either basic drawings or, or selfie photographs, and they're all of me, these images, by the way. They have to be because it's about selfie culture. Mm-hmm. I call them haunted, haunted selfies because it's showing the, the worst of us, but the materials are at the moment, are literally a Surface Pro with a paint package, and I'll take an image in and I'll paint into it with a stylus. Okay. Simulated media. Then I'll take it out, I'll filter it, I'll stretch it, I'll cut it, Mm -hmm. uh, I'll reassemble it, I might go back in and give it another go with the stylus, or I might just spit it out of the iPhone at the other end. You know, uh, whatever, really. Um, So I I think my materials are other people's code. You know, this is interesting because when you get into these paint packages, when you write code, and, and I'll, I'll come back to code in a minute, but when you write code, you you leave an imprint on the code yourself as a coder. This is quite in, what I've always found interesting is when I've worked as a programmer, when I've programmed art, you do leave an imprint. The code is personal that mm. you write, and the way you write it is yours. And, and I don't quite know how to visualise that in art terms, but it's nonetheless there. And it's almost like, you know, um, if you go and buy a tin of emulsion, if you buy Faro and Ball, it's different paint to Dulux. And actually, you can really tell when you look at them Mm. close. You know, and it's similarly with prepared materials. If you buy steel from one supplier, it might be slightly different from another and so on. And and that same sort of thing happens. So what you get is a difference with different packages and stuff. But this is what attracted me in the first place to sort of computational art, because... When I was making paintings and exhibiting them, and they were collages in the 80s and 90s, early 90s, and then when I jumped to computing, I found there was nowhere I could go that would teach me except for one place at Middlesex, uh, which had an MA, which took artists and designers and taught you at the time what was computing. Mm -hmm. And we had six months of programming, six months of advanced maths, all of that sort of stuff. And then they said, off you go, make art after six months, for the next six months. Now, those were the materials, numbers, mm-hmm. the code, the form of the code, the patterns. I mean, what's really interesting is, I suppose, thinking about it, and I've never really thought of it this way, but you could almost say that a lot of computational art is, is fractal in nature because what you're doing is creating patterns in code and in numbers that produce different versions of those patterns right up the stack to mm-hmm. the final piece. Yeah. You know. Um, through the iterations. Through each the layer. iterations of it, each layer, yeah. and then the way things are rendered. And so if yeah. you've got to send that over to here to render it or whatever, then that will give its own stamp as well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and that's the way good code's built. It's built, you know, with sort of objects that each interact when they're needed. So you've got a complex system. Mm-hmm. And that that's the, that's it. It's a system. And... With systems, as we know, and complexity, emergence happens. And actually, if you're confident with dealing with the code and you're dealing with the systems and the notion of it as a system, then I think 
emergence is much more fruitful mm. because you can't control what comes out, but you sure as hell can spot it when it's good and you can take it and run with it. Now, to me, that's no different to what any really, really good oil painter would do. They play with the medium, they play with the form, they look at things, they study it, they think about it, they play, they keep working and working and working and iterating and iterating, and then suddenly, pop, they hit something that's really, really good. Yeah. And that is a form of emergence. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So what does your computational art, or do your computational methods give you anything that an oil painting medium wouldn't? Well, we aren't in the age of general AR yet, so we haven't invented... uh anything that thinks for itself. Mm. So all, we do, all we've done so far with computing is simulate and extend and emulate previously made things. So, you know, yes, I'm working with simulated paint at the moment. What does that give me? Well, it gives me a much bigger palette to work with. You know, I don't have to say, oh, I'm a specialist in oils or watercolour. Mm-hmm. I can actually jump between them now, which means I've got many more opportunities to say... Things, meaningful things in the way I want to say them. And I think this is where the maths and the computing and all the stuff behind it really works because there's no limits to what you can do with it. I mean, what, what's really, really, really interesting and going to be really interesting is when people start using machine learning properly to take that yet again a step further. I've seen um, there's a lot of art starting to emerge where they're talking about AI that's created art. Mm. And it isn't creating art at all. It's, it's taking hundreds of thousands of images in, scanning them, taking essential properties of them and producing recombined images. But that's what any artist can do. Yeah. Now, OK, it's clever. It's doing it itself. Mm. But it's not really doing it with any kind of meaning and it's not communicating. It's not intelligent. 
I guess. No, there, there isn't a humanity there. No. You know, I mean, there's a question of why do artists know humanity? Mm. You know, and, and uh, this is an essential problem that artists, I think, struggle with. But uh, there is no point, you know. And, and if all you want is something nice to go on your wall, then buy something nice to go on your wall. But don't think of it as great art. If you want to be moved and cry, you know, go and see something in the theatre that makes you cry. Mm. But accept that they are all products of humanity because I mean my question with a general AI when you turn it on and say off you go make art it might turn around and say there's no point <laughs> Yeah. because actually to an, a true alien intelligence which is what that is there may well be no point to mm. doing any creative outlet it may be something unique to primates evolutionary wise and, and so you start to think about all of this as you can tell I've been in bed for a year I've been <laughs> thinking a lot uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, and when you when you get down to it and you start using computers, it just gives you that. It's the tool set, and this is what people are scared of. They're scared of things with AI. Mm. The, the, all these stories about the robots coming for your jobs—they possibly are, but they'll create more jobs. Yeah, and the jobs will be in places where you partner with them, the machines. But never forget, they're just in, just smart machines. They're not intelligent. Yeah. And there's a difference. And I think we're on that track now. So what I've been doing is adding the autonomous intelligence aspect and the humanity to computational ability to, to drive it. But in the end, it will start to offer you something back as you're doing it to help you move even further. Mm -hmm. um, so do you consider yourself partnered with the tools that you're working with? Do you know, it's, it's really interesting. I, I think of them as extensions of my hands. Okay. Even when I'm coding, it feels like an extension of the hands. And I think, you know, talking specifically about materials here, that's, I think, the key thing about code within art. It's giving you a material to work with, but it's a material that is actually an extension of ourselves in a real sense. You know, we've built lots of machines that are very powerful and they're extensions of our physicality. But for the first time, we're building things that are extensions of our brains and our intelligences. And I think that's the key to me with computing and art, that the, the nature of it sits in that medium there. And that medium is an extension of the brain, which I'm hitting my forehead now with my, my fist. <laughs> but it's an extension of this, and it's an ex and, and the physical tools, the hardware, are an extension of my hands. And, you know, if I, if I was saying, OK, you know, I'm, I, we're recording this in a, a material science place, so, you know, talking from the context of materials, which I, I admit I've not really thought hugely about uh, recently, but, um, you know, I would say that what computation offers you is that ability to explore a much wider set of outcomes than you possibly could have because you don't have to necessarily learn the craft mm. in a way you did. You know, to become a photographer, I had to learn how to operate a darkroom and do colour developing and all that. And now I don't. Mm. You know, and I can now add simulated lighting to a photograph afterwards by just rubbing a screen with my finger. And all of that is brilliant mm. because, oh, you know, the options are so many more. Yeah. I don't have to spend five years learning how to do something. I actually can think about what I'm trying to say 
Yeah. And I think that as a materials, looking at it from a point of view of materials, that's what the materials and technology are giving me. They're giving me the ability to to bypass, if you like, the, the necessity to learn craft in a traditional sense. And they're giving me the ability to mix and to manipulate all the visual language that I've learned in many, many more ways to say many, many more things. And this is what I mean about coming back to things moving you, and I think that's what computation is giving me. Mm. Because you understand the basis of it, and this goes right back to that choosing, how do you make paint? My rationale for choosing that course 25 years ago, whenever, was I learned how to make computing work, but as an artist. And part of the reason was that was at the time there was very little software to do anything. So you didn't get trapped in the notion, oh, I'll use this piece of software and get stuck and everything looked like it was made in that piece of software. Mm -hmm. You can still see it when you look at digital artifacts. You can see where, what tools people were using, by the way, it's rendering. Yeah. You know, it's quite interesting that, that pixels... Actually, the result can have a character like that, <laughs> which is the same as wood. It's the same as, you know, anything else. Yeah. You can kind of look at these materials and say, well, I know that was rendered on X. Mm. You can just tell. To what extent do you give over control to the computer when you're making your art? I don't think it's about giving it over control. I see things as systems. I think I, think, uh, I come back to complexity always and systems and emergence, and I think once you have code running, you get emergence and you get emergent properties and things popping out when you didn't expect it. And I think I'm happy to embrace that. And that's actually, again, in our always been there, it's the happy accident or serendipity. You happen to take this and you take that and you put them together in this way and you go, wow, that's really nice. <laughs> yeah. um, and we've always done it because our intelligence does that. And I think I'm happy to give some of that over to the computers. Without a doubt. I mean, this is the beautiful thing about machine learning, you know. Um, you can work with it and it can learn with you to a point. Mm. And that emergence is going to be really exciting, I think, in the next 30 years. When I do a talk, sometimes I've got a slide that says, look, here's a, a datum, here's some data, and here's the insight. And you put it up there in uh, binary and you say, you know, here's a byte of information, here's a a bit of information, here's a byte, and then here's a, a picture generated from this code, and that's the same as a brush mark, a, a bunch of brush marks and a picture. Mm. You know, it's the same conceptual thing. It's a little bit of a leap, but it's nonetheless, I think, very similar. And I think, you know, all of that stuff working in the brain is what I'm really interested in. And, and I wish, in a sense, I'd been a, a scientist studying it, coming at it from that angle. You know, I once, uh, I did say to somebody, I, I said, it's a bit odd because I'm sort of an artist, but I've gone that way towards science. And they said, well, perhaps you're a scientist and you've gone the other way to art, but you did it the other way around. And it may be, you know, that, that that's what I should have done, science. Yeah. But, you know, in the end, art is about people and experience, and I've really enjoyed making art. You know, even though I've, a lot of it I've never shown, I've just got in the garage at mm. home. Um, but the next stuff I want, uh, the version of the self is, I want to really start to engage people interactively again. So what will your future work look like? I'm not 100% sure. I'm thinking of making it, and I've been playing with uh, the notion of AR, simply because it's an easy way into it again. Um, 
I quite like because of the way they are. I quite like them to be uh, when you go into a gallery to the images to be sat there like Renaissance pieces, if you like. Uh, as I said, the gilt frames on the wall of the Northern European Vermeers and Rembrandts and stuff, but actually also to be hanging there in space confronting you. Mm. And that's I'm really interested in that. And I think in some way combining your feelings with that. So as people are looking at them, the AR version of them are changing according to the feeling of people looking at them. One of the pieces I did um, in my day jobs at a big competing company was to look at how people were feeling while they were doing things and then to change the interaction with software accordingly. So the software behaved to ma- in a way that matched your feelings. Okay. So if I was feeling bored at work, it would change to make me feel less bored it, at work? It, it would, well, it wouldn't do that necessarily, but it would change in a way that understood your feelings. Okay. And it would then offer you... It's very difficult to talk about this without talking about the exact product, and I'm not mm. allowed to talk okay, about the exact I see. product. Fine. Um, but it would, it would take the feeling that you're sat back looking really bored and your keystrokes are very slow, mm. and it would change the interface and the way it did things so okay. that it made it easier for you or it worked in a slightly different mode mm. because it knew that you just really weren't getting on with it. And that's what I mean about things like machine learning. So I'd like to bring stuff of that into it somehow and that that's a long journey i mean the first step will be just getting some ar running i think mm-hmm. um possibly maybe not still thinking about cameras in the uh, picture frames ah right okay so each pitch as you it reflects the viewer each picture well, not necessarily but um i mean almost going back to the cubist stuff is where i started with this thought that uh, you sit and look at the picture and it becomes you rather mm. than it and it becomes you in the style of the thing I've put there. Um, but then it sucks the life out of you on the picture and it decays over time or something. Wow. I don't know, something like that. Um, but I'm thinking, well, that's fine, but I'm falling into the trap there of thinking, what can the technology do? Mm. What I've got to get is, what do I actually want to say? Yeah. Because what I've done so far is very clear that mm. I've been channeling a lot of issues uh, into the work and I've been using it as a valve to let that out. Has that been it, helpful? Oh, yeah, it'd been massively helpful. Otherwise, I'd have been chronically depressed if I hadn't done that. Mm. Um, you know, I've talked about code and technology sort of democratising and then also giving you many more options to do many more things and from that to build your language in many different more ways. But actually, the other thing that technology, computation, networking, all of that gives you that I think artists very struggled a little bit with for centuries is the notion of collaboration I think if you go back to the Renaissance and before you had artists who would work in the studio the master would work in the studio and they'd have loads of apprentices and that would be very much a collaborative thing but it would be under direction of the master and we lost that somewhere Mm. and somewhere in Victorian times and and early uh, Georgian times the artist in, in the west became this sole genius working in a loft somewhere mm, and I think yeah. that carried right through the 20th century um, and I know artists obviously do collaborate and have collaborated but nonetheless it's not being built into what they do necessarily some yes, some not 
if you ask somebody to describe an artist, they wouldn't say, oh, it's a person who stands among a group of other te- ten other people no. in the way you would with a footballer. Or a scientist. Yeah, or a scientist. Absolutely, you assume there's a team. Yeah. Whereas I, don't, I think you never assume there's a team with an artist at the moment, and that's a fault of the last 200 years of culture. But um, I think it is naturally uh, making us collaborate. A friend of mine, Fidian Warman, who's, uh, I think, one of the best computer artists I've ever met... Um, you know, he, even he, who is a very good programmer, doesn't bother programming now. He gets people to do it. And, right. Uh, you know, you get other people to build it. And I think the role of the artist is moving from being um, the composer, if you like, or the lead, or the pianist at the front of an orchestra, to being actually the conductor. Right. And the conductor is the person who takes the score and the, the musicians, the raw materials, and they direct it to get the meaning emerging from it. Yeah. And I think this is where, when we, you know, coming full circle to the notion of talking materials, I think this is where we are heading. And that's where things like machine learning and all of that stuff coming is going to help you enormously. You know, there's that. And I think that's a key thing going ahead. And I think in terms of your materials and the way you sort of look at things and what your work is, as materials people yourselves, you're going to need collaborators artistically because there's that central problem of language in what you're doing. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. That's what this podcast tries to address is that rift or that gap between art and science and trying to speak the same language and build something meaningful. That language thing's an issue, and I think uh, it's, it's really interesting. Excuse the silence there, but it's really interesting. I've had this my entire career with... You know, computer people saying, oh, you don't know enough about computing. Or, you know, artists saying, well, you can't really get anything out of computers. Mm. Uh, you know, somebody said to me, you know, uh, computers are great and they produce great art, but they don't give you that phrase I used, I think, earlier, that emotional whoomph. Yep. Well, actually, I think my work does. I think so as well. And I think that's because I understand the artistic context in which it is being produced mm. and the language but I am also technically skilled enough to be able to realise that in the way I've chosen to do it. So if listeners have been interested in the idea of computational art, Mm. is there somewhere that they can start to dabble in their own sort of thing? Crikey. Uh, There are lots and lots of places, no one place in particular. Uh, Just search the internet for computational art. Don't search for digital art. If you search for digital art, you'll get loads of images made in Photoshop and stuff. Mm. Search for computational art uh, and computers and art because it is about computation, yeah, not about digital. Go to the V&A. You know, there are pages on the V&A website with um, the guy who founded the department at Middlesex, John Lansdowne. He's got a whole page about his art there. So, you know, it's out there. It's got a tradition. It's going back sort of to about 1960 mm-hmm. with early analogue computational art. Uh, and there is a tradition emerging, but it hasn't found its voice yet. But, yeah, just look. If anybody wants to see my work, they can find me on Instagram. Uh, I go under the name Richard F. Adams. Um, and I also own richardfadams.com, which is uh, has got some of the work on there and certainly got a couple of articles about the stuff I've been talking about, the selfie culture stuff. Um, or just tweet me. Yes. Where are you on Twitter? Uh, Dickie Adams with a Y. Brilliant. Well, yeah, listeners, I really recommend 
checking out some of Richard's work and um, with the knowledge now that you've heard of how it was made and the thought process behind it, I think it'd be even more powerful. You can also, by the way, hear the music that goes with it. All right. Don't get too depressed when you listen to it. <laughs> um, but the last album, Afterlife, is definitely written around some of that work. And the new one that's just come out, uh, Central Line, is as well. And where can we hear that? Again, you can find a link from richardfadams.com. But I'm Richard F. Adams on uh, Spotify, Apple Music, Google Play, Deezer, all right. them things. Uh, can't stop me, I'm just making, making, making. And that's the beauty of computation. So that was the brilliant Richard. Thanks so much to him for coming on the show. Thanks also to everyone who came out to support the podcast last night in London at Real Talk Presents. And thanks a lot to Roma the Engineer for being such a superstar. If you may start on that one, then the selected highlights will be on the podcast feed in two weeks' time. So don't forget to subscribe to the podcast for that. Alternatively, if you're in or near Birmingham on the 21st of February, you can come and enjoy another Real Talk Presents, this time with archaeologist Coralie Atchison. We're going to be talking about iron and its effects on the local area during the Industrial Revolution. And it is set to be a really awesome night. And tickets for that are on our website, and that's at www.realtalk.com. We'll be back with another episode in two weeks' time, so thanks for listening and see you then. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.